You can take your Bibles and open it to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation 16, and Lord willing, we will see if we can get through all seven judgments this morning, which, which might be a task, but we had them introduced last week. I think we can cover these and then learn a few lessons as we kind of conclude this morning. As you're turning there, uh, just a reminder of the world that we live in. Every time I look at the news, I can't help but be reminded of the uncertainty, which of course is a reflection of human nature in and of itself, the uncertainty of tomorrow, even though we tend to get in a routine and think something will last forever, and it's just not how it works this side of heaven. And so hopefully, just thinking through Revelation, as I've been studying, hopefully as you've been encouraged and as you've been listening, uh, just that the Lord reminds us that what is certain is His return. And that certainty should bring a lot of comfort in the midst of uncertainty. You just look at, uh, the, you know, the big one in the news tends to be artificial intelligence and the job force. And I know some of you are past working age, so maybe you're less concerned about what you'll do if AI takes your job. But uh, I don't think AI can retire well, so that side of it's nice. But uh, I just find encouragement in, in the certainty that we have in the Lord's return. No matter what happens, we can have confidence in him. But let's pray and then begin together looking at Revelation 16. Father, we just thank you for the time that you have given to us. We know that it is a gift that you have granted. Lord, what a gift it is even to be healthy this morning, able to gather with your saints, to be with brothers and sisters, identifying with the death and burial of your son and his resurrection and victory over sin and death even as we look to him this morning, where he's not mentioned, but yet we understand, as we've seen in Revelation, it is he who is worthy to open the scrolls, that even as your wrath is poured out, that it is preparing and ushering in, not the end, but the beginning of his reign, as we'll see in the coming weeks. His reign, not just in the way in which he is and has always been king, but in a real tangible way, of the way in which you intended from the very beginning to reign from David's throne on this earth. So we just ask that you would encourage us as we look to your word this morning. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, in 2007, which is longer ago than I care to admit, uh, I took a winterum course in seminary on Jonathan Edwards. And it was a fascinating course. And for those of you who don't know much about Jonathan Edwards, you probably know at least one sermon. And so at some point in most of American history, maybe not of recent, but you kind of heard of a famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And so I remember reading about that sermon, and pretty much up until that class, there had been a conference called the Resolve Conference. I knew a little bit more about Jonathan Edwards than just that sermon. But in that one-week kind of condensed course, um, it was very interesting learning about who he was and his life, and even just really kind of being towards some kind of consider the last Puritan. He's kind of post the typical era of, of what people consider the Puritan age. But when you look at that sermon, there's some very interesting things. It is a sermon absolutely about judgment. But one of the first things I remember learning about that sermon is that, A, it was not preached on a Sunday. And so you got to get context in that, oh, church was the social gathering. They didn't just gather on Sundays. And when they did gather on Sundays, they gathered all day. It's very different than, say, where I have 45 minutes on a Sunday morning. We didn't even have an evening 
service. They would have morning for multiple hours, and then they would come back, and they would have evening until it got too dark to have church, and then they'd go home. But they had meetings, revival meetings as they were, throughout the week, and it was actually preached on a Saturday. The second thing that's interesting about it is, and people have been critical of that sermon, if you read through it, is it's missing some elements. And if you're looking close at any sermon, it's probably always missing some elements, right? Not only are we human and we forget things, but also you can't fit everything into one sermon. And in the kind of Puritan way, um, it was known as a gathering sermon. So its intent was not necessarily to even share the gospel. And so if you look at it and you search, you will find the name Jesus this many times, which is shocking. You think this is one of the most famous sermons in American history and Jesus is not mentioned. Not one time is Jesus mentioned. But then you realize context, it was on a Saturday, it was a gathering sermon, and he was coming back on Sunday with the heat. It was the bad news sermon. Heaven, you could say is mentioned four times, literally. I looked this up, I was reading it. Uh, Two times, though, it's referring to heavens like the sky. And really, there's only two mentions of what we think of as heaven. And there's 52 mentions of hell. And you go, well, that's why people know this as the fire and brimstone kind of of sermon. But that sermon, not preached the first time, it was actually preached by Edwards a second time, was the sermon that a lot of people credit with kind of the moment where it kicked off that first great awakening. And so I think of that, I think of the role, at least in the way Puritans understood it, number one, that you gather more than once, so I even, I think there's value in, for us, whether it's Sunday school or deception groups throughout the week, But also just that there is a role for understanding judgment even in the church. He understood that. He understood that we need to understand the bad news. That there is judgment for those who rebel. Those who choose not to repent. And we can't look at chapter 16 without yet again coming to that reality. That there is judgment coming. But it is a judgment that is just and righteous. Not a judgment that is unfair. In fact, it's kind of almost strange to me that it's mentioned, you could say, there's the two times of verse 9, they did not repent. Verse 11, they did not repent. But even, you say, a third time, it kind of mentions 6, that it's explicit that they deserved it or they are worthy of the punishment. Because we're going to see similar kind of tendencies that we've seen throughout Revelation about judgment. So you're going to feel like maybe you've heard this sermon before, But there's a couple things that are unique. And one of those is that it is laying out very clearly, this is just, this is righteous, this is something that was deserved. They had an opportunity to repent and they chose not to repent. Even after these judgments, which are uniquely terrible. And some people look at this as a rehashing of the seven seals or the seven trumpets. Kind of Obviously it's that telescoping effect, this is within that... Seventh trumpet, these seven bowls are contained in that seventh trumpet. But they're distinct enough to see them as the last judgment. There's something chronological about them that they are distinct from what has come before, even though similar in some ways, but even more severe. For example, you're going to see that a river is turned to blood. Or one-third, I should say. Well, this is, it's completely turned the oceans into blood. And so chapter 15 was introduced last week, looking at the seven plagues. And if you see some similarities with the ten plagues on Egypt, 
You're, you're, you're not mistaken. Even it's called verse 3. But what are they singing? It's the song of Moses and these same themes of redemption, of God redeeming his people and bringing judgment on those who oppose him. Looking at 15 verse 1, John says that he saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. And great is one of those words that will pop up a lot in chapter 16 as well. It's great and marvelous. And seven angels who had seven plagues, which are going to be the same thing as the seven bulls, which are the last, because in the wrath of God it is finished. And so we're going to continue looking at these judgments, these last judgments. And then in 17 and 18, it's going to stop being chronological and it's going to go back. And it's going to look very specifically, what, is these, what do these last judgments look like with Babylon? And it's going to address the fate of Babylon in 18, or at 17 and 18. But this will, in the sense, finish this comprehensive look at these judgments. This is what we know as, you look at verse 16, Armageddon. The battle is about to take place where Christ is going to do what he said from the beginning, which is take back what is rightfully his. But it's not the end. It is, of course, the beginning of his reign. These are unique. These are not localized like the ten plagues in Egypt. These are worldwide, global in scale. So look with me here at the seven bowls. We'll walk through the seven, kind of seeing how they play and while they're referencing even kind of history and what will happen in the future again, giving us confidence of what will happen despite it being terrible and being judgment. And then look at a few lessons towards the end. But let's look here at the... Verse 1, as it introduces, it introduces it with a loud voice. Before you have the first bowl, you have the loud voice which proclaims from the sanctuary, which commands the angels. So look at 16, verse 1. It says, Then I heard a loud voice from the sanctuary. That is the sanctuary in heaven. The, you think back to what we've seen over and over again, that, that the, the sanctuary, the tabernacle of Israel, it somewhat was a shadow of what was in heaven. We saw that the smoke is filling it in verse 8, the glory of God and his power. And no one was able to enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So that voice is going to be the only one left, which is it's God's voice. And he says to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. We saw that last week, the wrath of God, the wrath of God, the wrath of God. This is the, the cup that is full, that is going to be drunk now by those who have opposed him, representative, whether it is Egypt or whether it is Babylon, all those who oppose Yahweh. And so we see here these bowls are introduced. And the first angel in verse 2, that first bowl, we see that he is commanded to go out. And what he does is he goes out and he pours out his bowl on the earth. And it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who have the mark of the beast and who worship his image. So these bowls are literally what you think of as bowls. They're, they're shallow saucers. If you think of a bowl of cereal and you pour out a bowl of cereal, this is the same idea. These are bowls that contain, in this case, judgment, the wrath of God, that are turned over. And that's the imagery here. The angel has it, and he turns it over, and he pours it out on the earth. You're going to see different things. It's going to be poured out over the earth. It's going to be poured out on uh, the throne of the beast. It's going to be poured out in the air. It's going to be poured out on the sun, poured out on the sea. What's that idea? of It's here. It's been stored up, and now it will be poured out. It'll be flipped over. 
And in this case, the first one is these loathsome malignant sores on the people. This is a Greek construction, you could say, that literally is, is evil upon evil, but meant to emphasize the pain of the sores. And it's poured out specifically on those who worship the beast and those who worship his image. And so it would seem this is not meant for God's people, the tribulation saints here, but for those who have bowed the knee to the Antichrist, to the beast. The same word, if you look at the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's the same word in the plague of uh, the fifth plague in Egypt. The same idea they were given boils and sores, that same thing here. And so they're inflicted physically, individually. So this is very personal, where some of these are going to be more global in scale, but all of them are afflicted. Why? Because they have taken the mark and they have worshipped the beast. The beast here, who is, we see the Antichrist and the false prophet have been given the ability that seems to have some miraculous nature uh, to do things, to do signs and wonders that make people follow them. But they're unable, unable to heal these malignant tumors, it would seem. And so they think maybe they would start to understand this is something beyond their power and they're unable to heal them. So the first bowl comes and the malignant tumors are poured out on the earth. And then the second bowl in verse 3, the second angel pours out his bowl into not the earth but the sea. And it became blood like that of a dead man and every living thing in the sea died. Each one of these, you can go and dive in a little deep because there's all kinds of things written about how could this happen? What would this look like? In this case, much written on, is it literally blood or not? Is it, is it like the blood of a dead man? That blood becomes very, uh, um, it kind of comes together and becomes very thick. Perhaps, it seems to be probably the, the best case. It's definitely something, this is supernatural in its nature. And it's poured out into the seas. And that blood that is like that of a dead man is going to kill every living creature. Every living creature in the sea has died. Reminded of localized where the Nile and Exodus is turned into blood or the second trumpet where a third of the sea. But this is, and it's one of the reasons I think these are distinctive judgments, this is far more intense. The world that we live in, 70 plus percent of it is covered by water. This is going to be massive and its impact on the globe. The fifth day, the Lord makes all of the sea creatures. And as much of Revelation, you see the comparison between Genesis and Revelation. This is the moment in time at the end where he unmakes it, uncreates, where they all die. They can't live in that. Not only is that going to be an issue of water, more importantly, will come next, fresh water probably, but within that, of course, food and all of the things that we get from the ocean, they will not be able any longer to get those things. And it's really a, it's a foreshadowing of what is to come in judgment. Because what's going to happen next is, of course, if everything around you is dying, you are going to be fearful for your own life. And so then the third angel comes who is commanded as well to go and pour out his bowl. And he goes and he's obedient. And he pours out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters and they become blood. This is where you understand, yes, there's consequences for the oceans that are made of uh, salt water, but you can't drink that. But here, even the things you go, the water that you can drink, the fresh water, it's poured out on those 
rivers and the springs, which I think is made and emphasized the springs, because that's what you drink from. They also become like blood, and everything ultimately is going to die in those as well. But he goes on here to describe this with an angel of the water. He says, righteous are you. And so righteous is the Lord. Because you might begin to say, well, let's look here. How is this fair? Well, again, God has been graciously allowing, patiently waiting. The gospel is being preached. Good news is being taught. And yet they don't repent. And that what's been happening is the wrath of God being stored up. And he is righteous now to pour it out. And he would have been righteous before. But the angel declares, righteous are you who is and who was. O holy one, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets. And you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it, it says. Some of you might have an asterisk there. They deserve. uh, Same word for they are worthy of it. Which I find interesting because there's some poetic way in which you understand that the lamb is worthy of worship. Worthy is the lamb. What are these rebellious humanity, what, what, are, what are they worthy of? They are worthy of judgment because they've sinned against the Holy One who is righteous. Not only have they sinned against Him, but very specifically this is where they cry out that the martyred saints say, How long, O Lord? They've been killing, murdering. And so this is just in every way. This is deserved So we've seen it over and over again. Judgment, judgment, judgment. Yes, in Revelation. But this is to point out whether uh, you have have hopefully good theology and you understand, well, that makes sense because God is just and holy. But if you don't have good theology yet, this is helpful to give you good theology to say they deserve it because of what they have done. We live in a a world where everything's celebrated, the kind of idea of uh, every culture is equal and all of those things. This isn't one where, no, there actually is right and wrong. There actually is something that is better. There is something that is worse. Everyone's going to draw a line somewhere. And what they have done is wicked. They have poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. That is, the vengeance of the Lord has come to bear on this world that has persecuted them over this tribulation period. They deserved it. And so he hears in 7, the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So there's an echo to say yes and amen. This is good and right. And no one will be able to say this is unjust in any way. Which I think would be very much for us one of those natural questions of is it just or is it unjust? And it's to remind us here it absolutely is just. And he goes on then in the fourth bowl... The fourth angel who pours it out upon, not the earth, not the sea, not the rivers, but he pours it out upon the sun. And it was given to it to scorch men, and this is generic, men, women, scorch men with fire. And the men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the authority over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. You see the reality again. They have an opportunity. He pours it out over the sun and it somehow intensifies its heat. And I'm sure there may be a natural cause, phenomena that God will use. But the matter remains. The reality is it's going to become unbearable for them. Some have speculated. You, we know if you, you melt the polar ice caps, you're going to have 
100-foot waves that come and destroy coastal cities. Perhaps that is one of the consequences of this. Again, scorching heat, unlivable, unbearable. So much so that they cry out and they blaspheme. They recognize that this is something that the one whom they have worshipped cannot fix. The the false prophet, the the beast, they, they, they can't fix this. And so there seems to be acknowledgement of there is a God. And he could stop this and he chooses not to stop this. But rather than repenting, they blaspheme, they, they curse his name. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. Last week we looked at that idea of glory, of weight. That you are made in God's image to give him glory, to reflect who he is. That is what we were made for and they do not give what they were created for to the creator and therefore they are rightfully judged. This is the whole idea in scripture of the potter and the clay. He is right to do what he wills with his creation. And so they, instead of worship, they blaspheme. They did not repent. Let you know that's an option and they choose not to repent. So after this, the fifth bowl they pour out here, the fifth angel comes, and he pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And we're reminded again, they did not repent of their deeds. And so the judgments progress, and here darkness comes over his kingdom, and the question of where is that exactly, we, we don't know. Like a lot of things in Revelation, we don't know everything. But it's to say it's darkened in a way, and it causes Pain, so much so that it's described as one's gnawing tongues. I can't help but have the picture of the, you know, when someone's, hey, I'm in pain and there's no painkiller, you grab the belt or you grab something and you bite. It's this idea of they have to distract themselves because it's so horrific. And yet, despite the pain, they do not repent. Darkness comes over Egypt. I think even where the wrath of God is poured out, even on Christ, it is darkened at Calvary. Here it is darkened. And yet, they do not repent. And so then, you continue. The sixth bowl is going to be poured out. This time, it's not so much going to be a judgment in in one sense, but it's going to be a preparation of what is to come. Because the sixth angel pours out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates. And you could say, I don't know, a judgment maybe that it dries up, but it's meant for a purpose. And, of course, that judgment's going to be that the armies can cross it and therefore go to battle against the Almighty God, which is not wise. And in that way, I suppose you could say, is, is its own kind of judgment. He allows them to get to the battle where they will be devastated. But the sixth angel pours out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. So what this is, is hinting at is this great battle that is to come. That they're coming. And there's, again, questions of why are they coming? And I kind of take that. I, I, I think they're, they're supportive of the Antichrist and are going to go into battle against the, the Lord. We're going to see that the great day, the war of the great day of God the Almighty in verse 14. Either way, they're able to come. And it's easy because this is a land war and cross that great river. If you look on a map and you see there near Babylon and you see the great Euphrates and Tigris and throughout Scripture, and even throughout Revelation, how important this river is. It's the longest, most important river in that area. But it's going to dry up and that will have its own consequences as well for those living in those days. 
It's the longest, most significant river in the Middle East. Throughout Scripture, it's important. It's one of the rivers that flows from Eden. It's the eastern boundary of Israel given to them that their land was as far east as the Euphrates River. But it's going to dry up, preparing the way for the kings of the east. But then he saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Remember, dragon is the picture here of chapter 12 of, of Satan himself. And out of the mouth of the beast, that being the imagery of the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. And this is where you have this imagery of this is like this. They're not frogs, but they're like frogs. So imagine if you really dislike frogs, this is good imagery. If you really like them, I, I don't know. You're, you're, I'm left to say, well, either way, they're, they're representative of demonic beings. They're the spirits of demons, verse 14 says. And they're going to do signs which go out to the kings of the whole world and gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. And so they go out deceiving, I would say, or at least convincing them to come gather to do battle with the Antichrist against God Almighty. It's not called here what we know as Armageddon, as 16 says, but it is a war against heaven itself. That he, they are gathering all the people from the world and convincing them, join us. And maybe there's promises of when you do this, when we defeat him, all these things will go away and... Maybe it's a promise of some level of freedom or just that desire to be rebellious or whatever it is. But they are willing to gather and they gather here against. And they're able to do it. Why? Because the Euphrates has dried up. And so out of what Revelation considers here the the unholy trinity come these evil spirits. But before you get to the seventh bowl, there is a promise, a blessing even. One of seven blessings throughout the book of Revelation One reminder that, behold, verse 15, I am coming like a thief. So it's almost as if in the midst of all of this judgment, 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 that John wants to say, or here in the vision, Jesus breaks through and is a reminder to those reading, whether it was the seven churches or it's for us today, remember, I am coming like a thief. That is to say, you don't know when judgment comes. You don't know when, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. And so, if that's true, if he's coming like a thief, then blessed is the one. It's like the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. I know it's been a while since we were in chapters 1, 2, and 3, but this is the same kind of language of being prepared, living vigilantly, living your life in a way that honors the Lord. And it's a reminder here that the one who stays, and this is the imagery of a soldier. If you are a soldier and you, you think battle is imminent, you're not going to get caught. Not wearing the uniform, not being ready is the idea here. Because the one who isn't ready, and they, the battle comes, it's going to be as if someone walking about naked and ashamed and saying, you weren't ready, you weren't prepared. And he says, blessed is the one who stays awake, which is, we saw that in chapters 1, 2, and 3, or 2 and 3 specifically with the churches. Stay awake, be prepared, live your life in light of a certain future of Christ's return. That way, you're not going to be ashamed when the day comes. We always need the reminder, and Scripture knows it, and so even here, we're 
given a brief reminder. This all matters. This is all important. And lessons, which we'll see in a moment, I think that we can learn even from such a horrific chapter and really section of the judgment of God at the end of the age. And so they gathered then together, it says, the place which Hebrew is called Har Megiddon, which in essence is a valley upon which this battle is going to take place. Can it get worse? Seemingly it can. And that seventh bull, that final bull is turned over and poured out upon not the earth, not the sea, not the throne of Satan, but here upon the air. And a loud voice, which we've identified here as the only one left that is in heaven at the moment until it is finished, that loud voice, God's voice comes out of the sanctuary of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. That idea, verse 1 of chapter 15, it is finished. There's no more judgments to come before, or no more judgments to come after. And the description here is, when it's finished, there were flashes of lightning and sounds of peal and of thunder, which we've seen throughout Revelation. And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. That is to say, there are earthquakes today. This is different. There are plagues today. These are different. Something that no one has seen before or since. And the great city, it says, was split into three parts. And the cities of the nation fell. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give up her cup of the wine of the wrath of his rage. And every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And a huge hailstone, about one talent each, came down from heaven among upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Sometimes that's where words fail, right? You just, it was really bad. It was extremely severe. It's just to say, words don't quite do adequate justice here. But this is the end of all things. Again, before you come back to 17 and 18 and look and focus in on Babylon, this is where, this is the end, which will be described a little more in detail later. This is how it ends with this seventh bowl. And he will say, it is done. It is finished. There seems to be some level of the world being remade, or you could say being prepared for the reign of Christ. Even geographically, it's being prepared. There's a lot to this, even thinking back to the nature of the flood and the way things are made. And that a world we live in today is not the way the world has always looked. And even today's scientists would even agree with that statement. That it wasn't always this way, that there actually was a single continent. That even think of the way the nature of mountains, that they divide and they're coming down. They're being flattened, it says. It says that the islands, which were in essence mountains, right, just in water, they're flattened. And the mountains are not going to be found in the same way. And it's going to flatten out. And probably going to be Jerusalem is the pinnacle point here. I take verse 19 as the great city being Jerusalem. Revelation eleven eight uses that phrase as well. It's a little confusing because then it talks about Babylon the Great. But I think it's talking about Jerusalem being split into three parts. And then also stating something separately. That the cities of the nations fell. That is God wins. Christ returns. Babylon has been remembered from the very beginning. The Tower of Babel to, uh, whether it's the Babylonian reign and their enslavement of Israel to this resurrection of Babylon. 
God will judge them and judge them fully. Even to the point, verse 21, that there are these huge hailstones. About one talent each is the idea. Maybe you might have a translation that says 100 pounds. Um, I think it's 90 to 135 pounds. It's, it's this idea of the most a man can carry. It's, it's that something that's this talent. This is something heavy. That is to say, larger hailstones than we have ever seen. Uh, I looked it up. Two and a quarter pounds is, is the largest in Bangladesh in history. This is probably 100 plus pounds. This is something dif- different, something unique. And in Bangladesh, when this happened, I think it was 1986, 92 people were killed. Well, you can imagine what kind of havoc, if that was what two pounds of hail did, what a 100-pound hailstone can do, not only on structure, but to individuals. And that's the description here, is it's coming down on heaven upon them from the sky. Because, why? Because the men continue to not repent the men didn't repent, didn't turn to the Lord. Rather, they blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. And so we see this completion of these judgments. But what are the, the lessons that you can learn from these? You can, you can learn, obviously, that yes, these are very graphic judgments upon which we've seen over and over again. It's to say we saw how severe the, the seal judgments were, we saw how severe the trumpet judgments were, and even... The severity increases with the bold judgments. Some are similar in many ways, but it increased in severity. But we're reminded of what we've seen over and over again in Revelation of, number one, the lesson we can learn from God's final judgment is that the inevitability, we can learn about the inevitability of God's final judgment. It seems to be a lesson that humanity has not learned throughout this period. It's towards the future that is coming of judgment we understand that the church is not there, but those who are alive in that time, that they somehow think maybe they can defeat the one who made them and the lies they believe that are told by whether Satan or the false prophet or the Antichrist. This is a reminder that it is inevitable. It's not a question of if, it's only a matter of when. I think of Revelation as one large promise. It's a promise that the Lord will return. A promise that's going to bring comfort to those who trust in Christ and a promise that should cause dread to those who rebel and refuse to repent. Number two, you not only see the inevitability, but you also see the case made here in 16. If you weren't already convinced of the righteousness of God and the justice of that there is a place where it is just to punish it makes it explicit here in 16 that the righteousness of God's final judgment. It is a just judgment. Going back to 16.5. Righteous are you who is and who was, O Holy One. He's the beginning. He's the end. He is the creator. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega, the Holy One. Because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink and they deserve it. Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true, righteous are your judgments. In other words, it is to say it would be unjust for God not to punish evil and wicked doers. And wouldn't have to search very far for our own illustrations in our systems. We understand there are people who have committed crimes, who have done something unjust, and we would say it's unjust if they are set free. No, they should pay for their punishment. And then, of course, the question of punishment becomes one of, well, does it fit the crime? And so, if you're caught speeding, we understand that it wouldn't be just that, you know, 
you're going to ultimately uh, be thrown in jail indefinitely. That, that wouldn't fit the crime of, of speeding. But if you do something where it is more severe, like murder, we understand that a severe punishment, life for life, would be given. What is the judgment? What is the right judgment against a holy and just God? It is to experience the wrath of God, which is seen here. And that's why it leads to this, which is, if it is inevitable, and if it is perfectly good and righteous for what God has done, that is, the question isn't, do they deserve it? The question is, we do deserve it, and why is he being so patient now? Then it serves, thirdly, as a warning of God's final judgment. That is future, not only for us to be reminded of what we have been saved from, but also for what awaits those outside of Christ. And it's a warning of God's final judgment. You can't help but see the correlations here with 15.1, the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Did you can see verse 19? Great was remembered before God, the Babylon, to give her the cup of wine of the wrath of his rage. The reminder, verse 17, that it is done. You can't be reminded, you can't help but be reminded of Christ to say that it is finished, it is done. And so the question for every human being who's ever lived, it's what are you going to do about the wrath of God? Because it's going to be poured out. The question is, is it going to be poured out on someone for you? And in the gospel, the good news is that Christ has bore that wrath for us. Someone's going to bear it. They do not repent, and therefore they are going to bear it. And that's going to be true of anyone here who chooses not to repent. They are going to bear that wrath. This is the judgment. This is where you're going to face not only wrath in time but wrath that is eternal. Hell described as gnashing and teeth, torment. And so warning, don't go there. Rather, look at your life and repent. Don't be like these here that even though they see all of it, they choose not to repent. Rather, God has sent his son that he would bear his wrath for those who would believe and trust in him. Romans 5, 8, 9. For this very reason, it says that God demonstrates his own love towards us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us because of how good we were, how nice we were. No, we were sinners. It was his sovereign choice that he died for us even when we were not running towards him. Rather, he is running towards us. Paul goes on to say, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Saved from what? Saved from God's wrath. Why? Because Christ bore that wrath for us. If we put our faith and trust in him, if we give him the glory that it's so clear he deserves. That's the good news in light of the bad news. Think back to Jonathan Edwards, 1700s. It's a fascinating piece of history. Um, you think about the, the whole nation of America, which, of course, America has its own issues and its own problems. But it is to say, I always find it an interesting era because it's that era between the first, say, 1700s to 1750 where you see a lot of the influence that happens from that era, which Edwards is part of on theology and on 
the nature of understanding who God is. You look at all the emotionalism that went on there. And, and Edwards writes the dangers of it. He doesn't want people just to be emotional for emotional sake, but to have true fruits of salvation. But it starts with understanding there is a judge. He is returning. He is right in his judgment. And recognizing that and then turning and saying, how do I deal with that? How do I deal with the God's wrath which is rightly pointed towards me? There's only one way, which is to ask God to save you and have that wrath poured out on his son. So may that be a reminder for us of this truth. That in Christ you can be saved from the wrath that not only comes in the future here, but obviously wrath that is eternal where we're even moving, where not only is there a battle, but then eventually a great white throne judgment that will come here in the future. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we've been given to look here at these judgments, that they would serve as reminders for us, that they are a a certainty, a reality of, of judgment that is deserved because of not only if... The nature of humanity, born into sin, but true because of who you are. That you are holy and you are just and you are righteous. And that there is a cost when a creation of an infinite and holy God rebels and rejects you. And the punishment that fits that crime is also likewise infinite. But we praise you. We give you glory because Christ was the perfect sacrifice for us. Fully God and fully man, able to bear that wrath for us on our behalfs. And that you raised him on the third day as vindication that what he had done is good and right and acceptable to you. So we rejoice in that truth and give you the glory. May we remember those Remember that this day as we sing it together. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen.